Hello and welcome back to the Super Jump Podcast, a podcast where we discuss various gaming phenomena to deep dive into the art and science of video games. My name is Tristan and I'm joined by Raza and our guest Matt Paprocki. Hey everyone. Howdy. Matt, before we jump in, since listeners uh, know Raza and I, did you want to introduce yourself really quickly before we jump in? Yeah, I'm a guy on the internet that you emailed to come <laughs> on the show and I have no idea where I am or what I'm doing. <laughs> and I don't know what these handcuffs are for, but you know, if you could take them off, that'd be great. That's afterwards. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, I'm a freelance journalist. I've been doing it for probably 22, 23 years now. I've been all over the place on Forbes, Polygon, uh, Playboy, Rolling Stone, Variety, uh, a whole bunch of stuff. I'm not going to go into resume. Um, But yeah, I've been around and I've covered games and development for quite some time. Nice. Great to have you on board. I'm glad I found your name on Wikipedia and you responded. I am famous. I'm a wiki person. I didn't know this until actually about 20 minutes ago. (laughs) So today we wanted to talk about um, something that's actually a pretty heavy topic. I know we're just kind of joking around right now, but Raza and I want to really dig deep into the sustainability of the video game development model um, and and the primary one that is happening right now, aka Crunch. Um, So maybe I can dive a little bit deeper into definition, uh, what's happening in the other industries, and then I want to hear you folks, your folks' thoughts. Um, so we'll do that. So first, Crunch, if you haven't heard of it already, it's compulsory overtime during game development where uh, in the studio, everyone has to work you know, 65, 80 hours a week for extended periods of time, um, often uncompensated, so they're not getting paid extra for this. Um, and... We can dig deeper into the reasons why, but a lot of the thoughts is because a lack of unionization, why uh, Crunch exists. And organizations such as Game Workers Unite is aiming to fight Crunch by forcing studios to honor developers' labor rights. Um, So that's kind of the TLDR. You may have seen in the news, seen in the headlines, hey, like Red Dead Redemption 2 has 100-hour work weeks to get the game out the door. Um, you see this across all, uh, not all, but a lot of AAA games across many, many studios. Um, and this is something that actually happens outside of gaming as well. Uh, we've seen this happen in film, TV, anime industry. Um, although those industries have had a lot more iteration and progression where uh, workers are basically protected via unionization and they're being paid by the hour. Um, and then one other thing before I kind of ask your folks thoughts is like, you know, Yes, lack of unionization is one part, but often it's also driven by the passion and surplus of demand in that industry. You know, people want to make games. People are excited about making games. So if someone's not willing to put in the 80 hours a week, there's going to be someone else that they can hire. So that's kind of a very high level view of crunch. I do have some very focused questions, but maybe I'll start with Matt handing over to you. What are your thoughts? What have you seen? especially with um, gaming and other industries as well. Yeah, you use the word compulsory. And yes, that's not necessarily untrue. Mm-hmm. But one of the things I found is that there are ways to make employees stay longer. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe it was on Battle for Middle Earth by EA, where they would have empl- mandatory employee meetings at like 10 at night. Mm-hmm. So if you work until 6, you're like, well, I'm not going to drive all the way home in LA traffic and come all the way back for the meeting. So I'm just going to stay. 
And that's what they would do. And of course, the whole time they're staying, they're going to work and they're not getting paid for those hours because they're not on the clock. Yeah. Um, so they would just stay. There were all sorts of methods to get people to stay. Um, Superman returns, you know, they go in to tell the boss, Hey, you know, I need a vacation. You know, my wife is going to a wedding somewhere. Well, okay. And then he, the boss would point to the stack of resumes for people willing to take that spot if he leaves. Oh my God. Jesus uh, Christ. Yeah. So compulsory. Yes. There are definitely exploitation and young people, especially who, yes, want to show that they have the drive and they're going to do this work, but there's also some manipulative ways to keep them there. They're like, okay, I'm just going to stay. I'm curious, do you think that the methods of compulsion have kind of shifted from the very antagonistic ones that you've kind of described here around like uh, fear and stuff like that to the ones that like the tech industry does now, right? Like the tech industry makes it so that staying in the office is fundamentally incentivized, right? Free food, um, the office is wonderful, etc. Do you see a world where the gaming industry or other industries kind of move to that paradigm? Is that already happening or... Is it just that the culture isn't there to kind of move towards that? And so it's still in this antagonistic position. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, there are studios who, yeah, make the office a really inviting place to be. Mm -hmm. EA for a while had one. Uh, You know, they have the pool table, the ping pong table, whatever it might be, an arcade. (laughs) You know, it's like, oh, yeah, I just want to go in the office. I'm just going to go play the arcade for a while, something like that. Yeah. Uh, But generally, no. Interesting. In the stories I've covered, no. Can I say it doesn't happen? No. Yeah, it totally makes sense. I, I'm assuming you know, company to company culture for sure. Um, yeah. it, it probably there's a few places that are okay with it, but in general, the the broader industry hasn't shifted towards a more positive approach. Not that you know it's a positive approach, but it's better than at least like threatening people for their jobs and stuff. Like I that, will. So. I remember um, an example going the opposite direction. I believe it was Superman Returns again, EA, where mm. the employees had formed kind of a LARP group. And mm-hmm. they would go outside, mm-hmm. you know, on breaks and they'd fight with their foam swords and stuff just to kind of get the edge off and beat each other, <laughs> you know, not literally beat each other, but just take out some aggression. And e- the EA execs didn't like that their employees were outside playing oh my and that God. people would drive by and see this. Oh so my God. they actually said, no more, that area is off limits. You cannot go there. <laughs> that was the end of the LARP group because there was nowhere else on campus to go. To be fair, LARPing is one of the like weirdest things that is hard to explain for people outside of LARPers. And I, so I, I don't could think this was like some... this wasn't like we're gonna get the costumes of this was like a foam sword and I just want to hit somebody with it. Type of LARPing. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. Because I've been here for eighty three hours this week and I just need to hit something. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Done. yeah. I, I guess maybe one follow up question is uh, I, I'm just gonna put you folks on the spot. Maybe Matt, I, I didn't pull this number before uh, when I was doing the research, like. How, what is like the average tenure of folks at these studios if they're being forced to crunch like this? Very short. Um, most of the people I interview have long left the industry mm-hmm. because their NDAs are expired so they can talk. Uh, they usually maybe get a couple projects in. Yeah. So maybe 10 years. It's mostly, as it's been explained multiple times to me, it's people who aren't married, don't have kids, mm-hmm. usually fresh out of college. Yep. You know, and by year 10, they've moved out. They have the kids. They have the marriage. Yeah. And they're like, okay, I got to get out of here. So they go to PR or something else. Mm-hmm. Maybe somewhere else in the game industry, but they are not going to do the low-level development. It's just this constant turnover and turnover yeah. so you don't get the talent that stays. So every project is new, which just creates more crunch because you have no experience leading the projects. Mm-hmm. 
And that knowledge is basically like drained out of the industry because they don't want to come back. Right, exactly, exactly. And the higher-ups, you know, they, they don't understand the creative side. There's always that conflict between the business and the art. Mm-hmm. And there's always that struggle. Well, we want to do this. Well, there's no time to do this. Well, if you do this, you can do this, but you're going to be working 80 hours a week if you do it. And they're, they're kids. They're like, okay, cool. That'd be the coolest feature ever. Let's put it in. Yeah. There's also just this constant flow of people that are willing to do the work, right? Exactly as you guys said. Mm-hmm. Um, I think like video gaming uh, or like working as a video game creator, uh, especially on the dev side, is becoming like a more lucrative slash acceptable position, I think, over the years, just like culturally, right? Uh, yeah. And so you have a bunch of eager, excited college kids that are just willing to do anything uh, to like work in this industry. And so it's very easy to just like have you have this pipeline that's constantly coming and also constantly growing. And so the incentive to actually shift away from this is very hard because you can throw people at the problem as opposed to being, you know, potentially more human about it. And I've seen a lot of people say, oh, well, just go into indie development. It's like, mm-hmm. OK, yes, but you can work your own schedule. You can book your can make your own games you can do whatever you want on the other hand how do you get your game out there right yeah yeah you, you, go, you go to like the switch you go to the switch store right now and i think it was like 1233 games are on sale yeah like on <laughs> sale that's not even the games for sale that's just like <laughs> the games that have a discount right now are over mm-hmm. 1200 how are you going to get seen among 1200 games and that's right. just the switch i mean steam <laughs> forget it yeah yeah no, it's tough. I think we we uh, Tristan and I spoke with a bunch of indie developers in the beginning, um, and I think Crunch came up a few times whenever we talked about their experience at past places. But then, exactly as you described, a lot of them, their biggest concern around the games that they developed were like, can, "Will people even buy this?" Um, and unless you're lucky enough to like have to be featured in the front of a storefront or really be caught, uh, have like someone's attention caught. It's very hard to sell a lot of these games, and so um, it's it's a difficult industry to be in on its own. I I know I also brought up other industries as well. So I did bring up uh, film, TV, and anime industry as well. You know, for example, the progression and iteration that has happened in film is that there's there's unions. Uh, they get to negotiate a guaranteed twelve. You know, which means that even if you work an eight hour day, you're paid for twelve. So there's an incentive on both sides of like, if you're called out for a shoot, basically the studio will try to get to 12 hours because they have to pay everyone 12 hours. Um, and then on the other side, uh, I guess maybe it's a negative incentive. You, you want to get things done as fast as possible. So you get paid for the rest of the day. I don't have too much information here, but Matt, I know you wanted to chat about this a little bit more. So yeah, maybe I'll hand it over to you. Yeah, the people say, you know, video games are a really young industry. Uh, say 40 some years, I'm well, maybe even closer to 50 now. Um, within maybe 20 years, the film industry had it figured out. Mm-hmm. And I think that's fascinating because by the 20s in the film industry, you had unions for the drivers, the people driving the stars to the set. Mm-hmm. There was a separate union for that. And it's not just, you, had, you know, of course, you had like your director's union, your actor's union, but literally the carpenters and special effects guys, everyone has their own union to fight for what they need or what's best for them. And some way, somehow we've made it now 50 years thereabouts into the game industry. And there's none of that. Mm-hmm. Like it's never bonded. I don't know if it, I believe firmly that's because of the turnover. No one's staying long enough to make that push mm-hmm. to get these things done. Um, or they're bouncing around so much to different studios. Every studio is going to have a different union. There's no centralized union. It's not like we need a union for workers at Ubisoft. 
Yeah. You know, we need like for graphics guys, we need one for yep. AI programmers. We need one for um, storyboard artists. They need all, they just need to form and it shouldn't matter where they're at studio wise, but I have a feeling that's what happens. They get locked into a studio culture yep. and they never really fight to get union representation and union rep isn't a hundred percent perfect. Like you said, Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it would go a long way toward cutting costs long-term studios see the higher paychecks like, no, no, we can't do that. But if you keep people who are happy, yeah. your costs go down over time because you have more experience, they can get through projects faster. Um, and I think the film industry also figured out the business much faster because obviously we're having a topic is this sustainable yeah. and it's not in gaming. Whereas cinema, even with COVID and theater shutting down, you know, now we've shifted to streaming. They figured it out. Mm-hmm. And it was like that. It was just, it was like an overnight shift. Black Widow goes to Disney Plus and it's like, oh, that's it. Everything's open. You know, everyone yep. can go to streaming. It's okay. And we're going to make money. The game industry is like, well, you know, we sold 13 million copies of Avengers, but we really needed to sell 15 to make a profit. You have a problem, a major problem. If that's not enough copies, it's 60 bucks a shot. Mm-hmm. to sustain your product. Do you think there's also external pressure in terms of um, the like gamers themselves wanting a frequent flow of games quickly? Like I find that um, whenever a game is delayed, uh, there's like a couple of different reactions, right? People are either upset that it's delayed uh, and they're like, just release it. Uh, or there's people who are like, take your time and, and like launch it, Right. But there's still a large influx of people who just don't understand how long it takes to develop these games. And so the studios have these general pressure from a business perspective, of course, to recoup their investments quickly, exactly as you described. But then also they have the pressure from gamers wanting to just like have games frequently, which also incentivizes them to just crunch and like stick to this rough schedule uh, that's that forces crunch as a result of the fact that it's just fundamentally unrealistic. It's completely unrealistic. Um, and I blame marketing more than anything else. And if you go through my Twitter feed, you will see one of my favorite phrases to tweet on a regular basis is video games are too damn long. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's one of the main reasons why it's unsustainable because video games are marketed based on numbers. Yeah. Yep. How many, how many levels do you have? How many hours is this? How many yeah. characters can you play as? It's all about numbers. So in order to get those higher numbers, you need to crunch your employees more to reach that yep. plateau. And now you have consumers expecting, Oh, this game's only 10 hours. No, I'm not going to pay for that. This game's only eight hours. Not going to pay for that the Games 50 hours. Well, maybe I'll pay for that. It's like, no, you need to have shorter games with shorter development cycles with fewer assets and you will mm-hmm. pump out more games a lot faster. Um, I've argued for that for a while, but the marketing side, I think, makes the public think, okay, we need to have this amount of content. And that's forced, that causes the delays. That leads to consumers being angry their game isn't coming out for this week, where they schedule their vacation around to play their game. Mm-hmm. And just it's this landslide of problems that are created. I guess my analogy in my head, since Reza and I were on were in tech, it's like the Big Bang launch versus iterative. Like, Matt, if if games are bigger and larger, the risk of failure is also higher because now that you spent like thousands and I don't know tens of thousands of hours making this thing, it, 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 it's not good, which has happened many times. Then you you, you just gotta miss everything. Yeah, exactly. I 
people are always amazed, like, oh, he is going to mobile. They're putting this game on mobile. Why are mm-hmm. they doing that? Why wouldn't they release it on console? Because you get one revenue stream on a console, generally. Yeah. Like God of War. God of War I'm playing right now. Mm-hmm. Fantastic game, but I pay for it once. That's it. They're not going to get any more money. Whereas a mobile game, a mobile God of War with $20 costumes or gems or whatever you need to purchase, it's going to make a lot more money. Yeah. And it's going to have a lower development cost. So it's just more viable to go to mobile. And people don't understand that. And they get mad when a franchise goes that route. But it makes perfect sense to do it. Yeah. I think from a business perspective, it totally makes sense. From an artistic perspective, I do think some people think that they lose out on that um, you know, experience of like playing a full developed game. But at the same time, like I think the, the broader problem is this like disconnect between gamers and the actual business of video gaming, right? Like I think people just fundamentally uh, don't understand how expensive it is to make these things and how long it takes to make these things, right? Um, one of the most recent things I saw on Reddit was folks debating the price hike from $60 to $70. Um, and people were obviously, you know, not happy with the fact that the next generation of consoles is pushing the base of cost to $70. But I think like when you do an analysis based on inflation from, you know, way back in the days, video games are way cheaper than they've ever been. And so there's this like broader question of like, uh, are video games actually expensive or do studios need this much money to actually recoup the very, very, very expensive costs of developing these games? Because it's super expensive, right? And so financial factors are just also a major reason for why crunch happens to get these games out as quickly as possible. It's literally less time that people are spending building these games potentially. Correct. And then you have, you got to think, okay, now on the consumer side, you have, I paid $70 for NBA 2K. Mm-hmm. Well, if I go into career mode, I'm going to have to spend more money on their virtual currency. Yeah. So it's not just seven people are like, oh, games are cheaper than ever. They're not. Yeah. Technically, there are rare circumstances, again, God of War, which as of right now, I believe does not have any microtransactions, but it probably will have costumes at some point. <laughs> um, but most games do have that additional revenue stream to keep money flowing in constantly. So it's the, they are more expensive. It's just a little more stealth expensive, if that makes yep. sense, if that's a reasonable term. And maybe maybe we'll, we'll probably jump around the note stocks since we're already talking about kind of uh, further revenue streams. Like we had a note around microtransactions um, and I want to bring up two things. One is like going back to the perception and marketing. It, I feel like the whole battle pass season pass DLC perception has gotten so negative. Whereas where gamers are like, Hey, you're just releasing a game that's 60% done. It's not even done. Why are you, why, why are you charging me $70 for this? And then on the other side, from the development studios, they're basically like committing to an extra X years of development, whether that's through crunch or not. And I, I, I don't know how devs feel about that when they, when they see that being announced. I'd be curious to the story of the master chief collection mm-hmm. because that came out. And I remember we could not get any multiplayer going at all. Mm-hmm. And it was like a year until we finally got it steady enough that we could play through a campaign with friends and get a game. And now Master Chief Collection's added ODST, and it's added all these extra maps and everything. That game's never stopped being in development. Yeah. I think since it launched. I think that would be a really interesting story to see. And No Man's Sky is another mm-hmm. great example. Mm-hmm. Um, how they're making revenue from No Man's Sky to justify that much development, I have no idea. Um, but yeah, it was released more than incomplete. I don't think it was even 50% complete, quite frankly. <laughs> uh, Cyberpunk 
is another one. It's oh, like, no. yep. yeah. this is broken. How did you release this? Um, and then you have to put the extra money in to continue developing it based on probably low sales because it got pretty trashed. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I don't know. I've never done a story like that. I'd like to, but I, I'd imagine you get really tired of working on those games after a while. Yeah. Yeah. I do think it goes back to your point earlier about how large these games are trying to be, right? Like these games just key cyberpunk in particular, right? It made so many promises about massive city uh, NPCs that are just like the best NPCs you ever interact with this crazy branching story, et cetera, et cetera. And that's what they aimed for it to be. But the scope was just so massive that it was fundamentally impossible to actually build the game at that scale and also have it be played on the consoles that, you know, people were, expecting it to be able to perform on uh, same thing with no man's sky right like the scope of what they promised was just so massive mm-hmm. um and it wasn't realistic for an indie studio uh to actually put something like that out and so there's this like pressure from the market to just keep promising larger games and both in terms of feature as well as time and it's just not possible to do that in the same timelines uh that we're used to one of my favorite stories was from madden 06 on the 360 Mm-hmm. which was like the first next-gen Madden. Um, oh, next-gen at that time? Like, yeah, next-gen like at that time. Yeah. yeah, 360 era, sorry. Um, it was so big, and they, ex- they expected this hardware to be so massive and mammoth. When they rendered the stadiums, they were actually rendering like junction boxes, electrical junction boxes. <laughs> and they were rendering not only the boxes, but they were rendering every switch inside of it. Oh, my polygons. God. <laughs> and once they actually got the hardware to put this on, they're like, why is this only running at three frames a second? And someone's like, probably because we rendered everything <laughs> with full polygons. <laughs> and they're like, oh no. It's like, yeah. So they had to go back in. They had to delete all of that and basically start over from scratch oh, no. because their ambition was so high. They figured we'll be fine. And obviously they were not. And Madden 06 is kind of a debacle to say the least. Yeah. Um, but that's the artistic ambition they wanted. Developers always want that, mm-hmm. but they're not considering the business side. And the business side never seems to correlate to like, yeah, they can do that. Sure. It's like, no, they can't. No one's there to tell them a producer needs to be there to say, no, this is our yep. scope. And we need to stick with it with, with the, with the movie. It's like, Oh, we forgot to shoot that scene. No big deal. We, we get it in reshoots. Mm-hmm. But if you do that in a game, you know, Oh, we need, we forgot to include this, this feature. Well, that can break your entire game mm-hmm. if you include that feature that late in the process. So, I I had a follow up because I, I like the two examples that Raza brought up. Um, no Man's Sky I won't get into because there's like a video by uh, internet internet historian that goes into it very deeply. But like specifically for Cyberpunk, it was very surprising. And uh, CD Projekt Red did not respond to my emails for this episode. Um, <laughs> wonder why um, but, yeah. but, um, it was funny because when they first revealed the game they said we'll just release it when it's ready and i mean of course there were like seven eight years of development and then they finally came out with the date and when it released it was just garbage let's just that's a understatement um so i wonder maybe to what you were saying matt like was it kind of failure from leadership and production like we, we can blame whoever we want we don't we don't know the details but it, it felt very weird that cd project red who had a history of basically making sure it's right making sure it's good before releasing something botched this entire thing so badly i i don't know because obviously the witcher came out witcher 3 came out great mm-hmm. 
and they take on a similar project and it goes so south. I don't know the inner workings. Right. But I can pull from previous stories like Lair on the PS3, if you recall, which was a disaster at launch. And that was entirely, entirely on the management who mm-hmm. wanted to do something really big in scope and they just ran out of time. They had to start over at one point. It was a totally different game. And it just spiraled out of control. And at some point, you have to release it. Yeah. Whether because of publisher contracts or whatever the case may be, you have to release something. And that's what you end up with. I don't know about the case of CD Projekt Red. I specifically can't speak to it. But at some point, you need revenue. The Witcher sales have dried up. You need a new product on the shelves. Um, How well did it sell based on that? I don't know because I remember walking into Walmart. And there's literally the bottom shelf of their game case is nothing but cyberpunks <laughs> unsold. And they've been there for like a year and it's like, ouch, I feel bad for Walmart and I feel bad for oh, no. CD project red. Yeah. I do think the thing was their pre-order numbers were so massive that, uh, it like they probably made a shit ton just from that alone. And so it probably was a good enough cash infusion to obviously make the improvements that they've made sense. Because in its current state, game's not as much garbage. It's still, I think it's a, it's an all right game, but its OG was, was, oh my god, it was really, it was really, really bad, really bad. I'm imagining a future where we don't have the online connection anymore to actually update it, and we got to use with like base on the disc mm-hmm. with no updates <laughs> at all. Wait, I mean, are you predicting some like internet apocalypse or something? Yeah, seriously. <laughs> Someday those servers will be offline. Oh yeah, that's true. That's true. That's true. Okay. It's getting scared. Uh, I guess my question is like this, this pattern of like game releasing broken, being focused, being fixed, maybe like a year down the road. uh, This pattern seems to come up again and again and again. Like it it happens to so many games now. I feel like it's perceived as being like the norm almost of like, Oh, it it released a little jank. It'll get fixed over the time. The day Um, one patch. Yeah, the day one patch is massive, but then in instances like Cyberpunk and No Man's Sky, it took a significant amount of time to actually get it in a good state. Um, and it's interesting how gamers will forget the OG state very quickly when it gets to that end state. Like with No Man's Sky, I see a ton of praise now for the developers um, because people are like, oh, they fixed it. Like they committed to this game and they like got it in a good state. And I'm like, that should have just been expected, right? Like <laughs> they, they released a broken product. It has to be fixed. Same thing with Cyberpunk, with like the recent updates and the promised like Liberty expansion. Uh, I guess my question is like, why does it keep happening again? And is it purely because gamers are quick to forgive? Gamers are quick to accept anything. Um, <laughs> I, 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 that's painting a broad brush. But remember when horse armor was the worst thing that's ever happened to the video game industry? Mm-hmm. Now a three dollar horse armor is a bargain. That's yeah. a sale price. <laughs> yeah. uh, remember online passes with EA. Yeah. Where you had a code inside the box to actually get online access to like PGA Tour, NBA, or NFL, whatever it might have been. People accepted it. And the more you accept, the more they push. Mm-hmm. So it's like now we're at a state where, yes, they release a broken game and we're totally cool with it. You release a game where the servers are broken on day one. Of course they are. You know, we just accept it. It's just normal and it's been normalized. Yeah. Yeah. And PR can wipe that out so fast that people just, yeah, they forget. That's the marketing side at work again, um, which for games is really good, by the way. Mm-hmm. I, I had another kind of thought slash question of um, like, I wonder what the game sales numbers look like for some of these AAA titles um, before and after it's quote unquote fixed. 
right? Because I remember when um, Edge Runners came out for Cyberpunk, and a lot of people were like, oh, I want to play the game. And patch 1.4 already came out. Game is in a quote-unquote playable state. And they're like, this is great. Whereas the hardcore gamers who wanted it day one, they played it, they threw it away, they didn't want to touch it ever again. I wonder, you know, the, the gaming audience is so broad, so large. It might just be that a lot of people who played Cyberpunk Total, the bulk of them came after it was fixed. Yep. If that makes sense. It's entirely possible. It's another good film industry comparison because with mm-hmm. movies, you know, you have the theatrical release, then you have the home video release, now you have a digital release, whatever it might mm-hmm. be. So you have multiple revenue streams, whereas games, usually you have a week or two. Yeah. That used to be the case where you have a week or two. I think one of their fixes was, okay, we're going to release Cyberpunk. It's broken. Now we're going to release Cyberpunk, the game of the year edition. <laughs> yeah. And that's their second revenue stream. You know, that is all the DLC and everything. And yeah. it still sells for the same price. So you have this whole second batch of people buying it. And you probably mm-hmm. have people who bought the original edition buying that one too. Yeah. So they found a way to continue making that money long term, but it's still really risky because if – I think Avengers is a great example. We're like, yeah, they've done a lot to Avengers and added a lot of content to it, but I don't really think it sold all that well in the first place. Mm-hmm. It's still garbage. Right. You don't have the, you don't, <laughs> If you don't have that initial install base, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Yep. So yep. the risk is so much higher, whereas a movie can bomb in theaters and it can find an audience on home video. Yeah, I'm speaking. I, I I ran a video store. I'm still like home video. Yes, that's a thing. You go to the video store. And rent. <laughs> video uh, store. What is that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, that's where my brain Isn't is. Isn't this a I- problem in the industry now for uh, for for movies, though, Matt? Like because we've moved to a more streaming focused world, the cinema, the the movie industry in general is is less. It just takes less risks because they don't have that secondary revenue of of movie sales, and so like it's because the str- the model has changed its impact of the industry's approach to the art. I'm like curious to hear your thoughts on that. Uh, if anything, I, I would actually argue against that because I think streaming has opened up more avenues. I just, I literally just 20 minutes ago finished um, See How They Run, mm-hmm. which is this little murder mystery that probably cost 15, 20 million to make. Mm-hmm. And it went right to HBO. And they'll be okay. That just it adds to their portfolio. It adds value to the streaming service. That that's not a theatrical movie anymore. I think yeah. the theatrical market has changed radically. We're not going to see a small rom com or yep. a weird drama anymore. We're going to see Marvel movies, yeah, big blockbusters. That I think has the COVID. I think eliminated the whole bottom tier of movies and theaters. Mm-hmm. All that goes to streaming now. But there is incentive to keep doing those movies. Because they fill the streaming services and they're great for at home. See, I mean, yeah. that's never a movie I would have watched in a theater. See them, I never would have watched that in a theater. Mm-hmm. But we're sitting here on a Saturday and it's like nothing to do. It's like, yeah, we'll pop that on. And then we, we use their service. And we yeah. subscribed and or we stole someone's password. <clears throat> and, <laughs> you know, added value to the service. I, I think there's, there's a change. It's happening a little slowly, but it is happening. And again, COVID really changed that. Gaming industry, I don't think they've adjusted their business practices significantly since the dawn of gaming. It's you put out a product, you sell it, that's it. We're one and done. They're mm-hmm. trying to shift that with, again, Game of the Year editions and DLC, but their market hasn't changed at all how they sell their games. That's interesting because uh, this is even in my notes at this point, but like free-to-play games, League of Legends. Yeah their revenue stream is insane. Maybe it's just like one in a billion, right? It's an outlier that we shouldn't really think about. To, to, just to clarify that comment, I meant for like the big AAA stuff. Okay. 
Yeah, obviously, yes, there are other revenue. Again, we talked earlier about going mobile and stuff. Yes, mm-hmm. that's changed. But in terms of like the core AAA gaming, that has not changed. You put out a game, you sell it. Yeah. That's it. I, I'm wondering the, what, how uh, things like Game Pass are going to change uh, the way that like uh, uh, publishers and developers actually make their games as well. Because exactly as you said, there's only one revenue stream right now, and that's the initial sale. But there is a push, I think, from... Uh, you know, Sony and stuff like that to move to a more packaged experience of like you pay for one subscription, you get access to like a bunch of different games, right? And uh, I don't know how the money works behind the scenes, whether it's like a per stream or per download, uh, you know, deal between Sony and the actual uh, developers. But I'm curious how that paradigm is going to impact the way that developers approach their video game design. Um, It's going to radically alter perception. Mm -hmm. Um. If you have, if we just talked about $70 games, right? Well, who the hell is going to pay $70 for a game if they can get it on Game Pass for 10 bucks or 15 bucks, whatever it is per month? So we have this devaluation of gaming that is happening really rapidly, too, um, where Game Pass is installing the idea that this game isn't worth 60 bucks. How many copies Mm -hmm. did Microsoft sell of Halo Infinite, you know, physically? Yeah. Probably not a lot. Mm hmm. Um, because who's going to pay $70 for a game when they can get it for 15 bucks? So I think that's going to be a shift. I don't know if streaming game, game streaming will ever catch on like they want it to. But <laughs> we I spent think, an hour talking about it last episode. Really oh, did you? Okay. 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 Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know where that's going to end up, but I think Game Pass is the method to go. And I think that could offset a lot of costs depending on, again, the profitability of it all. Mm-hmm. Um, again, like you said, how does the money work? Do you get it per download? Do you, do they just pay you a flat rate for your game and it's out there? Uh, it's I, a, I it's a revenue share. Uh, okay. Everyone gets exact. I, I, I'm just making it up. I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, because yeah. I know in like the movie streaming world, it's often it's not based off of like per stream. It's usually just like you have a licensing agreement for some period of time, and it's like a lump sum payment to the studios to you know have this movie on your platform. But I think video games are taking a different approach. Well, the interesting thing about the movie industry is that is what I called years like Netflix started to blow up, right? And I'm like, well, if I'm Warner Brothers, mm-hmm. why am I going to sell my movie to Netflix when I can have my own streaming service yeah, and yeah. get the money directly from the consumer rather than going through a third party? And right. that's exactly what happened. We have Paramount mm-hmm. Plus, HBO Max, uh, what's Universal, uh, Hulu, Disney Plus, Universal has one I can't even think of it, Peacock, that'd be Peacock. Yep. Um, so every studio, major studio has one, whereas now in gaming, we have MLB The Show on Game Pass, right. which is a Sony mm-hmm. franchise, which is crazy to me. It's like, I still can't get over Mario and Sonic in the same game together, because I'm that <laughs> old. And now we have MLB The Show on an Xbox platform, which feels completely wrong to me. Uh, so I don't know how that's going to work. It's like Sony should have their own. They should be keeping that exclusive. Why it left, I don't know. Yeah. Um, so I, there's, there's, there's a shakeup happening. It's just happening very slowly for some reason. Mm-hmm. maybe tying it back to the actual devs in that case like if mm-hmm. if they do approach it from a lump sum perspective i wonder if that would change the development factor at even at AAA studios because then it becomes like a financial runway situation i feel right if you're gonna get 50 million dollars to make game x for game pass then you can you can make that trade-off um because you know how much money you're gonna get right I mean, it's not going to get rid of crunch, but I, I feel like it changes the, the narrative a little bit. And possibly the scale that they're yeah. going for, too. Yeah. Um, I think Halo Infinite is one of those that probably... 
bit off more than they could chew mm-hmm. because they thought, okay, we're going to get this much because it's a Microsoft property is going to Game Pass. Let's just make this as big as possible. We'd be okay. Well, then they did, and it was like, oh god, this is way too big. Mm-hmm. And then they had to shrink it down a lot to make it just function. I don't know. Maybe they just overshot. Yeah. Because they thought they'd be okay, and they weren't. Are there a lot of like user studies or opera? <laughs> Raza's gonna love this uh, term, <laughs> opportunity sizing. I I I feel like at least in the movie industry, they know roughly how much a movie's gonna make because there's so much prior art there. I feel like games, it's it's all over the place. Yeah, you don't know your consumer. Again, I, Square Enix, I remember, I don't remember which Tomb Raider it was, but that was a mm-hmm. literal example I gave earlier, which was we only sold like 8 million copies. We needed 12. Mm-hmm. Like, you really thought you were going to sell 12 million copies? <laughs> like, I, I, what planet are you on? You were never going to sell that. Because how many games have sold 12 million copies? Like, three? Mm-hmm. You know, and most of them were included with a, a Nintendo console. Yeah, Wii Sports. <laughs> yeah, Wii Sports and Mario and Duck Hunt. Those are, yeah. you know. <laughs> and Grand Theft Auto Five somehow is still selling a million copies a month. Um, but yeah, I, there's no sense of, that's just not there. Which again, I don't understand. Mm-hmm. The only thing I can think of is that the movie industry cost is stable. Yeah. Because there's little iteration. You know, we still, you know, for years, they just shot on film. They knew how much the film, the actual film stock cost. Mm-hmm. They know how much it is to get a producer. They know how much it is to get a director. And those costs were kind of stable. Whereas games are always elevating a little bit. There's always new technology. There's always yeah. greater graphics and things like that, speaking so broadly. But mm-hmm. it's always evolving. So they don't have those steady costs. So they don't know. They I think see. they know how many they can sell, but they don't necessarily know the cost of it. Because you have different engines and all those sorts of things that can really cause problems behind the scenes. Yeah. Which again leads to crunch because the tech breaks or doesn't work. Yeah. And you need to rework things. Like both, it's an unknown on both sides on how much you're going to spend and how much you're going to make back. So mm-hmm. crunch is the, the tool to basically kind of bring that together as, as awful as that sounds. Right. And bring the cost down. Hey, we just looped that back. Look at that. We're good. So, Matt, I, I think, you know, as I was reading through your articles, looking to history, something prominent that came up was about the story about the EA spouses. Maybe you can just give us a high level and uh, to us and the listeners about the story. Yeah, the gist was a developer at EA um, who I believe was on Superman Returns, or could have been Battle for Middle Earth, I'm pretty sure it was Superman Returns, um, was working such long hours, his spouse posted a letter to the, the web and just said this is destroying our lives. This is ridiculous. I, I'm Broadly paraphrasing, paraphrasing this, <laughs> uh, but this cannot continue, and that began a, basically an unraveling inside EA, where a lot of people were let go or changed positions to try to fix this. It took a while, but that letter kind of ignited the conversation. I think for the first time publicly. Yep. Um, I mean, we probably had heard stories, but we—I don't think we outside of the development community knew how bad it was, and that go, it goes way back. It, goes back to this nes days atari days but this was the first time it really became public and i think that started a conversation Mm -hmm. and finally caused some studios to reorganize and put leaders in place who could cut down on this and enact policies to try to trim this down and the way it was told to me is that yes that worked for a while Mm -hmm. until the old habits started to come back and people began to just repeat the same mistakes again and again 
Um, yeah, that's what I want to bring up because like this story was not last week. It was it was a while ago at this point. Two thousand seven. Right? Yeah, eight ish. Fourteen years. <laughs> yeah, and the mistakes just repeat. It's like the studios just fall right back into those old habits because again, that's how you cut down your costs. You cannot make a game on the scale of a cyberpunk with mm-hmm. your your level designer working eight hours a week. Or mm-hmm. eight, I'm sorry, eight hours a day. You can't do it. <laughs> eight hours a week. Yeah, eight up. hours a week. Yeah, <laughs> great job. Yeah, you definitely could not do it at eight hours a week. Um, but eight hours a day, you can't do that. It's just it's mm-hmm. not feasible because your scale is so large. Yep. You need those people working. You're not going to bring in more people because the more people you bring in, the more new people you have that yep. you need to train, you need to bring mm-hmm. into the culture. They need to understand the process, where you're at in the game. Say you're halfway through development. It's like, oh, we're, we're bringing in 15 more people to work on that level. Mm-hmm. Well, then you need to integrate them, and that takes time. That takes weeks to get people settled, and you've just ballooned the problem. You, you need fewer people, more focused, but you can't create the scale that you want. So it's this yep. tough balancing act, which, again, leads to crunch, which led to EA Spouse, because Superman Returns was a total debacle. I'm curious, like, in this scenario, so the, the outcome of it was that a bunch of people within EA were potentially let go, and the leadership was changed, and so... Theoretically, if you have a different leadership style, then I think the goal was like different leaders, different approach to video gaming, and uh, a more healthy thing for for developers overall. That obviously didn't happen. Does that signal that like the pressures for this environment are more external uh, and and market based than they are internal culture based, or is it that uh, I don't know the people that were there were still working? or that came from places where the culture was still the same. And so it didn't really matter where you got the leaders because all the leaders come from the same, uh, same from, from the same places. It's interesting because a lot of the people I interviewed were at the dev level and a lot mm-hmm. of them just blame themselves oh. for being part of that culture and allowing yeah. it to happen. And they did it themselves and they look back on it and go, you know, we shouldn't have done that because we're what? just keeping this What's sense that? going. And the leaders, of course, because the producers want their bonuses or whatever it might be, let them do it. Mm-hmm. So course, it's, yeah. it's, it, it's an external and internal force. It's both combined. It's not just one or the other. Um, and it's a very steady culture. Yeah. It, it's, yeah. it's, I had one guy break down on me and cry. That's remembering how bad it was during battle for middle earth. And you want to talk yeah. about an awkward interview. Right? I mean, it's yeah. like, I understand, you know, I, it's like, I get it. I'm like, Oh, I don't know what to do right now. I don't know yeah. what else to ask you. Cause I'm pulling in these memories that are clearly uncomfortable for you. Mm-hmm. Um, to remember, remember how bad that went, but on the I will say that it was a rare example where the developers of Battle for Middle Earth left, and that team because they bonded, because they basically lived together for four yeah. or five years during development, are still together to this day, and they work at Scopely, which did Marvel Strike Force, Mar- um, the mobile game, mm-hmm. and they're making just boat tons of revenue, and they have a very strict zero crunch policy. They do not crunch ever. You work eight hours, you get out. I mean, that's it's like a hard rule at Scopely mm-hmm. because of that experience. And I part of me wonders if people had stayed longer in the game industry, if they didn't go through that, they didn't burn out so quick, and some of those guys went into leadership, if those policies wouldn't necessarily be in place everywhere. But the people who get in producers' roles are business people first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they're all profit. Whereas the developers are art and they know their restrictions. So, yeah, that makes sense. I, I think it's like, uh, it's difficult, right? Because 
a dev moving from the art side to the business side is also a different challenge in and of itself, right? Like there are still external pressures from the market to develop fast and to develop quickly and to deliver on like these massive promises. And I wonder how easy it is for someone to push back against that when they're in these producer roles, not to like not put blame on these people because they are fully responsible for these environments. But I'm wondering like how much of it would actually be eased by um, these hardened devs moving over. And uh, like, like maybe this is one case where it worked out, but is there a long tail of folks that tried this and it just didn't work because you know, the indie scene is hard and catching attention as a, as a new gaming studio is generally really hard. Right. And so how do you beat that? How do you combat that? I don't know. Yeah, I, I, that's an answer I don't think anyone's figured out yet. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I have my theories. Again, shorter games. Mm-hmm. It's top of the list. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I what was it? Was a Starfield that said there's like 22,000 planets to travel to? Or, yeah. Is that the one? <laughs> it's like, no, no, no one's ever going to play this. <laughs> no. There was, a stat, oh, there was a stat a while ago that 75% of games that people start are never finished. Right. That's totally unacceptable to me. I don't know why that's acceptable to anybody. Mm-hmm. Nobody has time for this. There's so many things vying for your attention now that sitting down and playing God of War for 40 hours is <laughs> such a commitment. Do you know how many yeah. movies I can stream in that amount of time? I, yeah, I don't understand when when this became acceptable. When I was a kid, it was great. Mm-hmm. You know, I guess, yeah, if you're 12, it's fantastic. But if you're not playing God of War for 12. But yeah, those big games are great. But as an adult with responsibilities and time and other entertainment options, there's just no way to make that functional. Yeah. I think the thing that also surprises me is the, the kinds of companies where crunch is present aren't isolated to companies like EA where they are their own revenue source, but also at studios that are owned by larger companies like naughty dog is a prime example of this, right? Like they're owned by Sony and Sony has a massive chunk of cash. Uh, So it's, it's not like, the crunch for revenue is so extreme that they have to be delivering within some time frame or delivering a certain, like obviously return is important, but the, the pressure is fundamentally less than, than somewhere at EA potentially. I wonder if it's like Matt said in terms of the culture, Yeah. right? Like if Naughty Dog has been operating like this for 20, 30 years, they're just like, I'm, you know, maybe they're scared to change it. Even if they have Sony's backing, there, there's probably yeah. some pressure of like, Hey, what if we don't deliver a good quality game? Yeah, I yeah. totally agree. And then you have the kids again coming in. It's like, oh my God, I'm going to make Uncharted. This is the greatest day ever of my life. Yeah. <laughs> and finding out that making Uncharted is not fun. Yeah. It's not. <laughs> it's not, no. <laughs> but you're a naughty yeah. dog. This was the job you wanted, and you're not going to leave because you're making Uncharted. Yeah. I And I wonder like how much of it is like um, these like big scales. That's a bit of an art element as well, right? Like in the sense that like these people come in wanting to develop these games as fully as they possibly can. And they do have a lot of passion for these things. Like The Last of Us Part Two was a very ambitious game and it was ambitious because of the directors and the developers. But obviously there was still a massive amount of crunch. And in that case, the crunch isn't coming from producers setting, well, I'm sure it's unrealistic timelines, obviously, but it's also just because they wanted to make a really, really good game and a really good piece of art. Um, and so in situations like that, the cultural element is obviously playing a much larger factor potentially than, than like market elements. Yeah, because there's an expectation. Yep. yep. Last, I mean, I can't imagine working on Last of Us too because the pressure to make a oh sequel to Last of Us, I, it's yeah. un- unreal. It's like let's remake Jaws. No, no, God, no, <laughs> <laughs> no. Do not take that project on. You don't want to do that. 
Um, yeah, it, it, that's again part of it, and it, that's the developer mindset, right? It's I'm making Last of Us too. So yes, we want to make it 50 hours long. We want to add all these areas and all these levels and all these characters, all this motion capture and all this voice acting. And it's just, it balloons. And I don't know, again, if the inexperience plays a role where these newer devs, these younger devs just don't understand how much it takes to get there. Mm -hmm. Or they just think they can pull it off regardless because they're young and stupid like we all are. (laughs) At any point in our lives, we've been young and stupid at some point. Uh, and I, I think that's part of it. They just they get these ideas in their head that we can pull this off, and yep. either yeah. it works or it doesn't. A lot of you know sometimes it doesn't. Let's be real, Cyberpunk, it didn't happen. Yep. Um, kind of moving things along. I I want to bring up maybe like is there a consulting gap that can be filled in the video game industry? Because we've talked a lot about games that had to crunch. I also added examples of like Fortnite, Fallout 4, Uncharted, we just talked about. But there have been games that didn't have to crunch to hit their success. Um, Animal Crossing, uh, Apex Legends, Don't Starve, they're kind of across the AAA to non-AAA spectrum. I'm sure they didn't work exact 40-hour weeks, but these were games that were highlighted for the fact that they didn't have to crunch the whole time. Going back to leadership, culture, and how people operate, Maybe there's an area where, like, a consulting firm comes in and just like teaches everyone how to do this problem. Like, <laughs> you know, m- m- maybe like two people will know, and that's it. I didn't think of this now until you just said it. But you mentioned Animal Crossing. I have never heard mm-hmm. of a Nintendo game having crunch, yeah, or any severity of it, at least enough to break. Maybe it just never came out. Yeah. But I can't remember hearing like a first-party Nintendo game relating causing a massive amount of crunch. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if they just don't have the system in place to do it because their games, generally speaking, aren't that massive. It's mm-hmm. like I'm playing Mario and Rabbits, the new Mario and Rabbits, and it has some decent scope, but it's basically just eight levels. And <laughs> they're, they're technically, they're fairly small. They're mm-hmm. not huge in scope. Even like what Mario 3D World and things like that, they're not huge in scope. No. And they work. And I wonder, I, man, now I'm really starting to think about Nintendo and if they just haven't like you said they don't have a process down pat to their development that lets them hit that quality mark meet the yeah. scale and not crunch all I'm right. now a fit Nintendo fanboy so <laughs> are all the developers for Nintendo uh, in Japan slash Japanese I mean they, they have acquired studios like retro yeah. studios is not Jap- uh, Japanese yeah. gotcha, gotcha. I was just and curious Mar- I- Mario, is Ubis- Mario and Rabbids are Ubisoft in some capacity. Gotcha. Okay. I don't know That's how that works. Yeah. But yes, mostly they're Japanese. I, I, I'm sure there's still major crunch in Japan, Japanese studios too. Yeah. I was going to say, I, I know it's like Japan in general has a culture of like very heavy work being the norm. And so I wonder how much of it is like, oh, it's not coming out or there's not this like uh, willingness to speak up as much because it's just a standard culture there. The other thing to consider with Japan though, is that you are a company man in Japan. Once you started a company, you don't leave. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You stay. So totally again, yeah. Good point. that brings the experience factor in. And maybe we just discovered something out of the blue. Like <laughs> the culture change. I mean, the, the way the culture functions really works for game dev. I don't know. All right. I'm going to cut this out. We're going to keep it a secret. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah. Delete all of it. Yes. Delete all of that. This is purely conversation. <laughs> oh, God. We're going to um, get canceled. <laughs> 
Uh, I, I think we're approaching our time. I, I don't want this to drag up. I, I feel like this is a very negative episode. Um, I mean, for the right reasons. But I, I think the biggest thing was like, Matt, you brought up right at the beginning. Like, video game industry, we've been operating like this for, uh, we, as if I'm in the industry, um, 40 to 50 years. It hasn't really changed. You know, what... I guess we already answered it. Culture change is the thing, but do we see this just going forward like this for forever? Uh, I don't think it's forever because I don't think it's, again, sustainable. It's just not, it's not financially sustainable to continue doing this. Because again, if you sell 8 million copies and don't turn a profit, you've done something wrong. Sorry, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, it has been sustainable for 40, 50 years. Has it though? How many studios have closed? How many have been bought by EA and then just destroyed? Mm-hmm. Oh, so that's, it's that's, yeah, <laughs> it's sustainable if you're EA, if you're Ubisoft, if you're Sony, if you're Microsoft, if you're Nintendo, mm-hmm. if you're anyone else, and you know, Activision, which is now a Microsoft property. Um, you're you're just not. You can't get into this space unless you are well set and have mm-hmm. the money to lose, just in case. So no, it's not. It's not sustainable. The studios aren't around. How, again, how many great studios have gone under? Remember PopCap? Mm-hmm. Anyone remember PopCap? How amazing PopCap was with these tiny little games that were the best thing you ever played. Now they just do Plants vs Zombies first person shooters. <laughs> I mean, sir, that's all they've done in the, like the past decade. It's just it's crazy. That's not a sustainable. It's not sustainable. You cannot operate like that anymore, and it's a real shame. I wonder how much of it is felt by gamers in a real tangible way is the thing, right? Like, I think as a new, uh, like, I think a, I, I consider myself like a relatively younger gamer because I really got into gaming at, like, college. And I didn't play it as much in the, in, uh, when, when I was young. And I think there's a large audience of just casual gamers that just want to play good games. And they're, frankly, unconcerned about studios. They All they want to know is, like, are there going to be four or five great games that come out this month or this year? And, like, can I play them? And so from their perspective, it doesn't really matter as much, right? And so, like, from a gamer perspective, do people care about studios going under? I'm not saying it's a good thing or bad. I definitely don't think it's a good thing. I I think it's a horrible thing. I don't think it's a good thing at all, obviously. But my point is, like, there's other industries where, like, the standard is really just like, oh, I don't really care. Right. And mm-hmm. so I'm like, is there enough of a care for this to actually change the model? Because mm. it's not working from an individual studio's perspective, but the behemoths are still doing fine. Right. Yeah. And they're going to continue to do fine. And they drive a lot of these, these broader culture changes. So I don't know, just throwing some fire well, out there. Do you care if you go into a movie and it's Paramount or Universal? No, not at all. No, not at all. You, you do not care. You don't care if the game is EA. You don't care if the game is Ubisoft. You just care if it's marketed enough to you. If it's maybe it's a favorite franchise, maybe it's a Far Cry. It's like, yeah. oh, Far Cry Seven, cool numbers, and you go purchase <laughs> the new Far Cry, right? It's just, yeah, I yeah. don't think most people care. The problem, though, in terms of sustainability, is that yes, people only buy a few games a year. Mm-hmm. So if you're not one of those, if you're EA and your game isn't the one that people are buying, you're you're in a tough spot. Why are they only buying four or five games a year? Because video games are too damn long. And nobody has time to play these things anymore. <laughs> yeah. That's why. I'm telling you, that's why. It's my theory. I'm probably wrong. <laughs> my I do think I, money is a factor, frankly. I mean, $70 is a lot per video game for the average person still. And it so, is. like, it's hard to bite that. To uh, Yeah, to actually take that down. And so that also, for me, is like, I'm like, it's sustainable. 
in the sense that like people are still getting the good games that they want. They don't care if they don't finish. I don't know. I, I feel like looking at it at a macro scale, if the only studios that are left are the big ones, I mean, I'm sure there will always be in these studios, but the video game industry and genres and progressions, like whether it's new genres or whatnot, I think that's going to slow down. We're, we're going to get to a very like homogenized set of games. Like I'm thinking about things like really shook things up like Undertale or Gone Home um, or now I'm forgetting all my indie games like I don't know, Super Meat Boy that, that were very unique and like a lot of AAA games very it, like not copy but took the functionalities and features i i think we're gonna see less of that we're gonna yeah, see call of duty on. every year which is great perfect <laughs> well no i mean you look at i mean the ubisoft right you're gonna climb radio towers for the rest of your life because mm-hmm. <laughs> that's <laughs> every ubisoft but yeah. think about this in sony games you're climbing on walls you're climbing on rock walls because mm-hmm. it happens in war happens in charter last of us yeah all of them horizon all yeah. of them <laughs> It's a Sony feature. It's just, it's like they have this baseline design, even though like, okay, Horizon and God of War are the same game. Watch me get ripped on Twitter for saying that, but (laughs) they are, they're exactly the same game. The way their narrative is told, the way they function in terms of like crafting and picking things up and weapon leveling up. They're like Last of Us, same game as Horizon. Same Re- game. Reza's crying. Reza's a uh, <laughs> Sony fanboy. He's like, I'm a very hell? big Sony fanboy. <laughs> yes. No, I don't. No, but I, I, the rhythm of these games relies. Yeah, the, the rhythm of these games is very simple uh, yes. in the sense that they are all very similar to each other, and it, it's part of the reason why they succeed is because gamers know what they can expect when they come in, and they know that it's going to be a high quality narrative, but that it's not going to be crazy. It's not Dark Souls, right? Uh, right. It's just fundamentally uh, predictable. So right. it and it's it's comfortable. It's comfort food. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh yeah, look, I'm Kratos. I'm gonna go through this very small crack in a wall because the game's loading as I do that. And look, I'm on the other side, and I did that in Horizon, I did that in Last of Us, I did that in Uncharted, and it's just it's the Sony way, the same as Ubisoft, who gets all the flack for the radio tower thing. Sony does the but same. But people thing. still buy their games too. Like, yeah. It's never stopped people from being like like I think this is the thing, right? People still buy these games, right? Like it doesn't matter whether people complain about developers having to go through crunch uh, mm-hmm. online if they're still going to shell out 70 bucks when the game comes out. It's the same yeah. thing with the Pokemon games, right? Hot take, Pokemon games suck. Uh, <laughs> and they just uh, like, they're crap every year, but people still <laughs> buy them. People still buy them. And so nothing's going to change, right? <laughs> like if we want crunch to stop, either internally people have to unionize and yep. speak up, or externally people have to stop buying these games, right? Yeah, One of those has to change. Yeah, exactly. So, like, what's going to change for Crunch to go away? Or it makes, or or it makes shorter games. Don't forget that one. Yes, because yes. they're yes. too yeah. damn long. Totally. Yeah, unpacked was great. <laughs> give me a give me a five hour campaign, and honestly, I'm happy. We had it, two it, great hot takes on this podcast so far. Yes, we've, had, we've had all Last of Us is the same as God of War, which is true. <laughs> And yes. uh, we've had Pokemon games suck. Yes, Pokemon <laughs> games do suck. I'm sorry, Pokemon. <laughs> look, okay, hang on, hang on. Pokemon hit when I was in college, uh-huh. and I just missed it. Right, I didn't I get that frenzy. And I worked at Toys R Us at the time, and I hated mm-hmm. Pokemon with a fiery <laughs> passion. So that that's part of me. I'm a little bit biased, I admit. But. I just I I just paused playing Pokemon Scarlet before this recording, so I'm like the Pokemon <laughs> fanboy here. <laughs> And even you'll admit it could be more. It could always oh, be yeah. more. 
I feel like Garza, when when whenever you and I talk about Pokemon, I I I'm also happy to pick out the flaws. That's totally fine. I think with that, we we will wrap it up for this episode of the Super Jump Podcast. Um, maybe before we do the final outro spiel, Matt, did you want to share with our listeners on you know if you're working on anything and where they can find your work? Oh, I'm not working on anything currently. We're kind of in the gaming review crunch. I've done a few reviews this year, but no big stories on the horizon as of right now. Uh, but you can follow me. If Twitter still exists by the time this posts, um, you can follow me there. It's Matt underscore Pat Brocky. Um, I generally use Twitter quite a bit, so I hope it still exists by the time the show's over. Um, I do have a review blog, reviewemall.com, review-m-all.com, which I probably should post something to recently. Because uh, it's been a little bit, but I also run doblue.com, d-o-b-l-u.com, which is all of my movie content. So you can read movie reviews and disc reviews. Because I'm a physical media guy, support physical media, um, <laughs> and you can read all my movie reviews there. Awesome, thank you. And as for us, you can find all episodes of Super Jump Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, Stitcher, and all your favorite podcast directories. You can also find all Super Jump content where we honor the art and science of video games. Uh, we love at superjumpmagazine.com. And finally, if you like this episode, please share it with a friend. And if you want to reach out to us for feedback or ideas, you can always do so at podcast at superjumpmagazine.com. I've been your host, Tristan, joined by Razan Matt. See you all next time. Bye. Boom. Boom.